Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This is episode 2021.4. As usual, I have Phil. Hey, Phil. Hey, Rohan. How's it going? Good. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nebukasa. Easily access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that supports the Home Assistant project. Configuration is done by the user interface, so there's no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. This episode is sponsored by morebeer.com. For over 25 years, they've helped creative people like you create your own beer, wine, or coffee at home. Find out more at morebeer.com. Listeners of the show can save $10 off their first order using promo code HASPODCAST. That's H-A-S-S podcast in one word. Jumping right into it, Phil, 2021.4. First and foremost, Home Assistant Analytics. Have you have you seen some of the charts there? Uh, no, I haven't yet, but it does look cool. I've literally just installed the beta. We're about to flick on the um the analytics i saw that yeah like they've been such a like because we're obviously testing home assistant during the beta there's been a lot of people that have just flipped it on anyway and they've actually had a whole bunch of data coming through which is amazing mm-hmm. so basically for for those listening, if you don't know what it is essentially home assistant can send back uh anonymized data from your from your instance uh, now, just if you, when you're reading the release notes, you'll notice they do talk about privacy. They do talk about all this stuff. You know, don't don't freak out. It is again, it's an opt in, and if you don't if you don't want to do that, don't do it. Um, but again, all of that stuff is open source. That's not uh, mm. coming from any other closed source places. So, uh, I was actually just reading the release notes uh, not that long ago, and they're just saying, you know what, go check the code, uh, jump in, and audit it yourself. Yeah, exactly. They're they're encouraging you to turn it on and. Uh, yeah. If you don't want to, that's cool. But uh, what essentially what happens is they send some telemetry, uh, again, anonymized telemetry back to Home Assistant, uh, i.e. the develop, uh, sorry, the developers. And essentially what they can figure out is, you know, how are people deploying Home Assistant? How is it used? That kind of thing so that they can actually process these upgrade updates and things like that a lot faster, a lot better. Maybe not faster, but but just at least focus on what needs to be focused on, right? So as an example, if nobody is using one specific way of installing, um, so for example, I use I use Home Assistant on a container. If nobody's using Home Assistant on containers, well, maybe they'll look at deprecating that platform or maybe they'll look at, you know, c- converting that to something else down the road. Mm. So, you know, it does help. Um, the analytics are uh, freely available, so you can go to analytics.homeassistant.io and check it out there, uh, and uh, and actually see the data and see that tabulated data. So it it is actually pretty interesting. Yeah, so it's obviously running right now, run for beta users, and very interesting. So uh, at least, so this is obviously very skewed to people that are on the bleeding edge, like you and I, and the developers yeah. that you know go in and try and get it into a week early. But you know, forty nine point five percent of users running the beta are running Home Assistant via um, the operating system, and mm-hmm. only you know a quarter of people are running Home Assistant via a Docker container. Uh, the average number of entities running in Home Assistant, remember this is all skewed to those beta users, is 380. And the average number of automations is 39. Now, when I flick on my integration with analytics, I'm sure that average number of automations is going to spike a little bit more. But there's 82 average integrations. Uh, and, you know, the Amazon Echo in- installation has 227 installations. Google Cast is very popular. MQTT is up there. So this is all data that I can't wait to see once people start upgrading and it starts getting into real world cases. 
we just need to see what's the average number of automations people are running, you know, like what yeah. are people running Home Assistant on, you know, and what integrations are people, you know, are, are using and what's the most popular? Because I think that data alone will be able to assist the developers a lot, you know, where to focus, you know, for example, uh, the Philips Hue integration. I can't see that uh, at the moment on this list. That doesn't need mm-hmm. to say that once, you know, things go live that uh, the Philips Hue integration won't jump to the first place, right? And in that case, you know, if Philips Hue is number one, then Home Assistant will need to put in, you know, more resources to make sure that that integration is rock solid and that you know, yeah. any breaking change that comes out to the Philips Hue integration needs to be managed better because it's going to affect the most amount of people. So this is where that sort of information becomes really powerful. Sure, sure, exactly. And and even from there, it uh, it's it's actually pretty cool. I'm just clicking around as as you're saying this. Um, mm. You know, it, it, even internal integrations. It's it's interesting because you know, obviously, some things like authentication and stuff is turned on for everybody always. Yep. Uh, but then, but then you start seeing, hey, you know what? System health. Not everybody has system health. Um, actually, as of this point, if the numbers I'm looking at, it's exactly one person has system health turned <laughs> off. Uh, you know, it, it's things like that, right? Which is pretty interesting. Um, mm. Again, webhooks are are among the top installations. Uh, again, saying, like you said, uh, the Amazon Echoes, uh, Home Assistant Cloud, and and things like that too. So it's actually pretty interesting, right? You can you can start to see, okay, what uh, what are people doing? And you know, right now I'm seeing you know, number 63 is FFmpeg. And I'm I'm starting to get curious what people are doing mm. with that. As in, why are there this many people using that, right? So, um, you know, how how useful is, is this data to you and me, Phil? Probably not very, but it's still very interesting to see, um, I think, so. And also, because this is all open source and, you know, it's made available publicly, there's mm-hmm. nothing stopping, you know, uh, other open source home automation projects or even, yep. you know, home automation products that are, are paid, you know, like your Samsung Smart Things or your Fabaro Home Center controls. Totally. They can now go in and see what, you know, products are people using, what are the most popular sort of smart home integrations and mm-hmm. tailor, you know, systems for that. So it's a good way to give back to the home automation sphere in general, I think. 100%, yeah. So one thing to note, we actually spoke about something like this a long time ago, I'm thinking like a couple of years ago. It was originally uh, an update to the Home Assistant Updater component. Uh, yeah. They would start pushing, you know, basic usage statistics back to Home Assistant. This has now been completely replaced uh, because I think it just wasn't working. They weren't getting enough data. So this is a whole new integration that's been written just for this version. So... Yeah, so so cool. I wonder if that's that's uh, getting deprecated. It is. It's actually uh, part of the breaking changes for this release. So uh, the uh, updated components, so you, there is a, a couple of parameters you could have. I think there was include, use components, uh, and reporting. There were configuration options that were available yeah. in your YAML. They've now been deprecated. So if you have those, uh, they won't do anything. You may as well just remove them from your YAML. Perfect. All right, so that was, yeah, so that's, pretty big first one obviously not you know uh, a fit like a feature that people are going to use every day mm-hmm. but uh one that has been added in is the ability to filter automations scripts and scenes based on the entities the devices and the areas that they are in 
So this is something cool. So there's been a constant feature request to have the ability to uh, organize, you know, automations and scripts into folders, right? And I don't know about you, Rahan, but I've started trying to name my automations and scripts in a certain convention. Uh, For example, like, uh, you know, the room name first and then what it does and, you know, what action that's taking place. Just to try and, you know, so if I'm using the services area that I can get to the automation that I want, I know what it's going to be called, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I do like automation or notification or like I kind of categorize them that way, right? And then, and I don't don't go as deep as you do, but... Mm. I, I try and categorize it at least so I can at least help filter down that way. So it's it, it'd be nice to have that kind of folder-like effect, right, that you can have. Yes. So now if you go into your configuration area and into the automation section, there's a new filter area up the top. And those filters allow you to now filter by the entity and the area and, of course, the device. It's not available in the developer tools uh, that I can see. So if you rely on the del- uh, the states area to do anything like that, you won't find it there, but you can find it from that automations, scenes, and the scripts sections of the configuration panel. Right. Um, and speaking of automations, um, there's actually been a really, 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 I mean, from my perspective, I think this was one of the biggest things we were missing in automations uh, is the ability to debug automations. Um, so if you're a programmer or you've programmed in the past, or you're familiar with the concepts, uh, you know, debugging is one of those things where you want to do things like, Hey, how is it actually stepping through this automation? How is it actually, uh, how, how, how is the automation actually working in, Mm. in real life rather than how I think it's working? Um, so there's a lot of those kind of features that have kind of uh, been brought in. And, uh, you know, whether it's it, it's Paulus, Eric, Bram, Thomas, everybody's kind of collaborated and uh, come up with some kind of a way to way to, uh, you know, see this and, and visualize it, too, as well, uh, physically. Um, so Paulus talked about this a little bit uh, when we quizzed uh, when we quizzed him about what was coming up. So, I mean, since we have you, Paulus, I mean, so switching tracks a little bit from from a home assistant perspective where um you know what are some of your plans what's uh what's happening where are things going that's a good question um yeah so we are i mean home assistant is kind of chugging along nicely right it's it's uh, it's happening i think uh last year i mentioned uh, chip that's something that definitely we need to start looking at um we, yeah i had kind of thought that we already would be working on it but it's uh things always come up so, mm. for example, one of the things that just came up is that we're adding tracing to automations. So, until now, automations have really been a black box. They fire, you have to go into your logbook and see kind of what did happen, what just happened. Right. And now with uh, tracing, and this is really a kind of developer uh, term, but what it means is that you can actually see every step that was taken inside your automation including like if you have an end condition, how each individual condition, uh, you can actually look into it and see what were the variables that were available at this time, what was the result of this condition, and so you can see why did my automation not fire. Right. Uh, you can also see what actions happened, and then you know we introduced this concept of context like a year and a half or maybe two years ago. I don't fully remember. But with context, we can actually see which state changes happened because of this automation. 
Right. So now when you see your trace of like a timeline of how each action happened in your script or in the, tri- in the action part of your automation, we can actually see also the state changes that then happened in Home Assistant because of that. So if you have a long running in automation, for example, one that uh, has like a wait for trigger, which is a... Mm-hmm. Uh, which are the, the cooler one? Like it, 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 this cool concept that we added last year to have these long-running automations. Um, that's now very easy to debug because you can see is this automation actually running? Because you can look at traces while they're being recorded, right? And then you can see, oh yeah, it's still running and it's waiting for the next trigger to move on. And then, oh, this trigger took like five hours, and then these actions were happened as part of this automation. Yeah, that's cool because I, I'm. I must say that, like, my entire, like, whenever I've tried to work out why didn't an automation fire, it's always, all right, go and check conditions. And I have yeah. sprawling condition logic, right? <laughs> like, you know, and there's an and group here and then that subgroup by an or over here and all that. So being able to, like, reach, like, run a trace on those things is going to be, like, a game changer. Like, it's going to yeah, empower totally. so many, you know, different, you know, permutations of, you know, and clean, like, reduce YAML because we can do much more complex automations now. And then, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And, and, you know, before this, people would always look at their log files and stuff. Yeah. And it's just, it's a kind of an abuse of log files almost, mm-hmm. right? Like, because now <laughs> people had to know about logging and had to figure it all out. And so yeah. I really hope that with this, um, it will be really insightful. So something we were also talking to Paulus last week about, Rohan, was uh, the, you know, where things were going with Home Assistant and, mm-hmm. you know, where the future will lie. And, you know, we started talking about, you know, trigger-based sensors. And for the first time in 2021.4, they've started the groundwork for this. Um, I believe it starts with template entities. So there is the ability for, you know, template entities to be triggered uh, based either from a webhook or something like that in Home Assistant. Um, But it was really cool to see, you know, what Paulus has, you know, the future of this working from. So let's take a listen to what Paulus, you know, has big plans for this little feature. Uh, so we've uh, recently updated the REST integration. Um, I don't know if you saw this or noticed this, but the REST integration used to be platform-based. So you had to do like, hey, sensor, platform, mm-hmm. REST, and you define your REST endpoint. And then right. if you wanted to fetch the data from the same endpoint, you would have to define a second sensor or a second binary sensor. And so right. we were overloading REST endpoints, right? There was like, oh, there's like REST endpoints. Like now we're fetching the same endpoint five times. Yeah. And then actually we implemented a faster uh, way of fetching the data and then certain endpoints were uh, hitting DDoS protection because we were making so many requests. Yeah. And so we've rewritten the REST integration in a recent release where you define one endpoint and then you define all the entities that are derived from this. So the sensors and binary sensors and you define like the templates That's and so uh, we fetch yeah. the data once and then we update all those entities. That's and nice. that's actually been an approach where we've been thinking like yeah that makes a lot more sense Mm -hmm. so until now we told everybody always like oh here's template entities and template entities and we did a lot of work on it actually to make them you know last year to make them super like be aware of what in the state machine they rely on and so they can when things are in the state machine we can see if Mm -hmm. we have to update them but then it's actually annoying because everything has to go through the state machine. And so if you see with the REST integration, we take the data from the source, you write exactly what you want to write and nothing else. And the beauty of something like the REST integration is that, um, and we don't do this yet, but we could provide blueprints. 
So right. there's a lot of REST endpoints in the world that you might want to turn into sensors and entities, but a lot of REST endpoints might want to be customized based on the city or mm. if it's, for example, for weather. And yeah, sure. of yeah. course, an integration, making it an integration is better, but not everybody is capable of doing that. Yeah. So as like a step towards making integrations, we could have people, for example, have a weather, I don't know, I'm just saying like open weather uh, blueprint that you put in your location, it will actually set up the REST integration to fetch from the right REST endpoint and create the right entities and mm -hmm. done. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So that's kind of something we're exploring. And as part of that exploration, I actually just uh, yesterday created like a prototype, which you were calling the trigger entity. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you have a trigger in an automation, uh, a bunch of variables become available that the, the trigger was based on, right? So the right. trigger could be data sent to an MQTT topic or a webhook coming in with data. Now, if we take the same approach like REST, but then instead of a REST source, we have a trigger source and then allow you to create entities based on that. So for example, now it would be very easy to have a webhook being sent to Home Assistant turn into update like five entities, like a mm. bunch of sensors, a bunch of binary sensors. Um, there's some overlap because, of course, MQTT triggers, right, would then mm. pretty much be the same sure. as having MQTT sensors and topics. But I think that we're going to, th this is going to make it also a lot easier. Um, if we, if uh, we don't know yet in what shape this is going to come to Home Assistant and definitely, well, I wouldn't say definitely, but probably not for April. Yeah. Um, but it would, again, open up a lot of cool ways to turn an event-driven things like webhooks or motion detection events or topic messages mm -hmm. into entities. And entities are usually better for, you know, entities are great for tracking history. Entities are great for inside yeah. dashboard, right? Because we cannot capture events so well on the dashboard because they happen and they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. So. And another cool thing about trigger entity would be um, sometimes we have motion detection events, but people want to say, hey, when motion is detected, actually consider motion detected for at least 20 seconds. So this right. is something that could be part of a trigger entity saying trigger whenever the, other, the trigger triggers and then after 20 seconds, turn it off again, like have a timeout added to it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, that's actually really cool. It sort of yeah. allows Home Assistant to be receiving data coming in and creating entities as opposed to having to poll for things all the time, right? Which, exactly. With that, right now you can do that with MQTT, but then once you, set, well, you have to set up an MQTT broker and, a sort of, and get all that working, right? Whereas that, yeah, yeah it, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been, you know, we've been, I think the until now, whenever people wanted to do these kind of things, we always said create an integration, create an integration. Mm. Yeah. And... That still will hold true. Like if you want to reach the most amount of people, if you want to make it as easy as possible, integration is the way to go. Sure. But I think that, you know, once we have these blueprints uh, or for like, I don't know, blueprints for trigger entities or just trigger entities to begin with, I think we can already get very far uh, without integrations. And then once we see that something is popular, convert it into an integration. Yeah. yeah. So that way it's more accessible to more people. And also, I think, I mean, if something can be built using a trigger entity, I mean, maybe we should have just a wrapper for trigger entities to be wrapped up as integrations. Sure. That would be kind of cool, yeah. 
Well, it, it, it breaks down that barrier between, you know, like somebody like me who has no idea how to create an integration, right? Right. And, but I, but I might know how to do the rest of it and take that and throw it in, in a wrapper yeah. and boom. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also going to help. Like we, we get, um, often there's been vendors and they're like, we want to integrate with home assistant. I'm like, great. This is how you do it. They're like, no, no, no. What is your API? And I always say, no, Home Assistant, we don't have an API to create sensors and binary sensors and all that stuff because we don't want to add to the problem that we're trying to solve, right? If a vendor implements the Home Assistant API, that means that their data is still not accessible for the rest of the world, right? So instead, Home Assistant should speak the protocol of these vendors. And so if we allow them to make it easier to create a protocol that we then consume because we have things like a trigger entity, et cetera. I think that will definitely help uh, also just get more stuff in Home Assistant, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what a lot of people want. They want to see all the stuff and then be able to automate on it. So the easier we make that for everybody to use it and contribute to, I think the better. So in terms of new platforms, uh, so everything everything we talked about so far is just within Home Assistant mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what, uh, the home assistant developers, uh, the core developers have kind of been focused on. Um, so in terms of what new, uh, there are a couple of things. So uh, first of all, uh, the Panasonic Viera now has support uh, so that, that that integration now has support for remotes. Ooh, nice. Mm-hmm. Also, Philips TV now has support for remotes. So kind of keeping on that same uh, same topic. So it's it's nice to see that these uh, these are coming in. I remember when the remote component was very first created for the Logitech Harmony Hub, yeah. uh, and it's just good to that was like years ago now. Like it's good to see that you know this remote component is finally starting to get some more TVs added in. Oh, totally, totally. And and you know it's it's there's a bunch that are already there. Like I think Samsung mm. has uh, some level of integration at least. Uh, yeah, LG I believe has it, which I think you use that right. The, yeah. Yep. Love my WebOS TV, it's the best. Yeah, yeah. Also, GoGo Gate 2 and iSmart Gate. Um, so uh, to provide some wireless sensors. Uh, sorry, provide battery sensors for their wireless door sensors as well. Excellent. So if you got those, those are in there. Um, also, the Reem Econet products uh, now have support for climate entities. So, yeah, more climate goodness coming in. Never. <laughs> That's awesome. Never a bad thing. All right, some breaking changes. Um, of course, there's some breaking changes. Uh, first of all, the Xiaomi Mio fans have been moved to the config flow. Now, uh, if you have this set up in your YAML, it will be imported into the UI on startup, and then you can remove it from your YAML. Uh, very interestingly, though, I know in the release notes, it's flagged as the Xiaomi Mio fan um, I actually have a Xiaomi Mio fan, which I'm got in Home Assistant via a custom component. So I was really excited to see this in the release notes. But when I plugged it in through the UI, I got an error from Home Assistant saying that my Xiaomi Mio fan was not recognized uh, as a compatible device. Oh, interesting. But interestingly, I do have a Xiaomi Mio Wi-Fi switch that has now come in to my UI. I don't remember seeing that previously. So I have a feeling that this Xiaomi Mio change may not just be for fans, it may be for other Wi-Fi devices that you may have linked right. through YAML. So just watch out for that one. Well, that's that's one way to find out that your platform's not supported is when it's broken. <laughs> and you're <laughs> like, oh. 
Yeah, so luckily, uh, but if anyone's, I will leave a link to that custom component for the Xiaomi Mio fan that I'm, I've got running. Um, it's perfect. I've no complaints with it. For whatever reason, the official Home Assistant uh, image doesn't support it. But yeah, there is a custom component to fill that gap. Nice. And kind of along the same theme, uh, Google Cast, so the YAML configuration for the uh, Google Cast integration is moving to the UI as well. So uh, that'll be fully removed as of 2021.6. So uh, you should be, uh, you can, you know, you can still run with it for a little bit until uh, until the update to that in June. On the um, Google Cast integration, um, mm. I think they've added in, I, I remember skimming the release notes, and I think there is auto-discovery now for Google Cast entities uh, oh. in Home Assistant now. So you may not need to, you know, specify, you know, hosts to target it. I could be making this up, but that's from my understanding of just skimming the notes. I'm guessing this would also tie in well with the media browser that Home Assistant mm-hmm. has now. So, you know, you can hit that little cast button from within yeah. Home Assistant and it will, you know, detect all those Google Cast entities on your network that you can cast to. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. If, if that's the case, that would be, that would be awesome. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the updated component that's, you know, got to remove those... Uh, and uh, those YAML options for sending usage data back to Home Assistant. And also Gritty is gone. So ERCOT shut down a layer Gritty after the massive power mess in Texas in mid-February. So I'm assuming Gritty was some form of electricity monitoring service for users. So that's gone and dusted. Yeah. So last week when we spoke to Paulus as well, uh, he also talked about something else cool coming around the corner. We already have in the back end, but we're not going to make it for the UI for the April April release is uh, debugging. So breakpoints. So yeah. for the non-developers that are listening, a breakpoint is you mark a spot in your code. And when the uh, computer is, ex- is executing that program runs to that spot, it will pause and it will allow the developer to look what is happening, what's the value of each variable. And then allows you to kind of step into the program line by line as it's being executed to see what's happening and to really see like every little piece. And maybe you can influence the state machine so you know that the next condition is going to pass, these kind of things. Um, And so in the automation world, in Home Assistant, what will happen is that you can actually mark certain actions as a breakpoint. And then when it gets to these uh, actions, it will pass. And then you can actually do the same thing as like when you're debugging a program, you can step through it and like take every step. Yeah. Right. That's cool. Like the developer in me is like very excited for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the non-developer in me is very excited for this (laughs) because usually that's usually why I'm spending weeks on something, you know, very trivial, right? Yeah. And so I think this is going to be really, really cool. And what I hope is that, you know, everybody will be able to write better automations. And then this will also mean that people can write better blueprints and then we can share those blueprints and then even more people can benefit from all the hard work that we're doing. Yeah. 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 So in terms of, um, you know, like debugging and, and and all that, I know you mentioned that there's, uh, it's not going to be in one of the April releases. Is there, obviously everything relates back to a YAML automation. So will the UI have support for you know being able to trace a ui the same as if someone had written a automation in yaml because yes because what happens is that the even an automation written in the ui is Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. structurally the same as an automation written in yaml Um, sometimes there's a little bit more constraints the ui will actually have a subset of what is possible in yaml 
Sure. So, but in the end, it's the same engine running the same code. So a trace will work for both uh, automations. The only uh, requirement is that the automation has an ID. So the UI will automatically add IDs to automations. Yeah. And if you um, define them in YAML, you should start adding an ID to your automations because okay. that's being used okay. to, you know, keep track of the traces and link them back to the yeah, automations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a hot tip there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's going to be super cool. I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, automations, like it will be uh, easier than ever before to figure out what's going wrong. And sure. Yeah. Reduce the pain points. I think users are having, you know, like, you know, uh, why did this automation work? But the frustrations, right. And the yeah. Like clearly, like there are ways around it already, but the more frustrations people you can remove, right, the better, right? Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. We've always talked about how we want to make things easier. And, you know, people are always afraid that we're taking the YAML away as being you know that, that that's what it means yeah. but you know that's not the case here is that we're actually you know enhancing whatever you however you write your automations you can have great insight in it and write better automations yeah. yep makes sense all right and the cloud strikes again so we saved it to the end this time uh <laughs> So Xiaomi, Yeelite, uh, so so Home Assistant released an alert to, um, in the last week, uh, basically for the firmware updates for uh, Yeelite manufactured Xiaomi bulbs. So just to be a bit confusing, right? Like, who'd yeah, blame I know, you? right? I, I, you know what? I didn't even realize that uh, Yeelite manufactures Xiaomi. They may actually be the same company. I have no who idea, knows? but that's what I assume too. I they've got a pretty close relationship. I just assume they're all the one, right? Like you would think, but like Aquara and, and all that is like just Xiaomi, right? I'd assume yeah, Yeelite yeah. was another well, version of that. Those are those are at least Xiaomi brands, right? Like mm. Xiaomi, Aquara, or, or actually. Yeah, I think it is. But like, or like the Xiaomi Mi, right? Whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. So may, maybe Yeelite is, and I'm just misinformed. Who knows? So, but Xiaomi has basically said, hey, we want local controls to be restricted since it's a little bit risky in their words. Um, so it sounds like Yeelite wasn't the one making the decision. It sounds mm. like it was Xiaomi. But basically, if you have that, if you have uh, any of these uh, light bulbs, check alerts.homeassistant.io. There's a thread um, and uh, it talks about how to install ESP Home onto the devices, uh, which, I mean, if you listen to our last episode, that is now part of uh, the Home Assistant project. Mm. 
but uh, you know, there's there's a way to install uh, ESP Home on that, and uh, that should work uh, for you hopefully. Um, so they are, as far as we know, they're Wi-Fi connected bulbs, um, and the Zigbee devices shouldn't be affected since kind of the point of Zigbee is to keep everything kind of local, right? So, you know, I've said um, it again. I'll say again. This is why I try and avoid Wi-Fi like the devil, mm-hmm. right? Like, why it is any device that talks Wi-Fi is just a firmware update away from being bricked and unusable yeah. in your local environment. So. Zigbee, Z-Wave, you know, all those, Bluetooth, any local protocol, that's fine. But Wi-Fi, I don't know, just it's same with a TP-Link, right? Like, it's just that all over again. You have to yeah. end up blocking them, which is, you know, something that we actually spoke to once again with Paulus last week about, you know, just this whole, uh, you know, manufacturers, you know, becoming, you know, sort of more security conscious and, and, and locking down their sort of, uh, local control of things, but and Paulus had some interesting things to say about that. On that, I mean, the three of us have kind of talked about this both online and offline in terms of you know organizations coming and starting to open up. How are you? How are you seeing that going? Like, are you seeing more organizations as you have these conversations? Are you seeing more organizations saying, "Hey, yeah, fine, you know what, you're right. Let me uh, let's whether open up an exclusive API for Home Assistant or let's let's do fine. We'll, we'll open up our API in general." Like, what does that, uh, what does that, you know, kind yeah. of look like? Um, so, I mean, we're having some of these conversations. I think that the, the problem we have is that the, the, there's this stigma around open source, that it's small, that it's irrelevant. Mm. Yeah. Even, like, they only think open source is relevant if there is a well-known brand behind it, right? So, yeah, Chrome is open source. Firefox is open source. Linux is right. open source. Yeah, we know this. So, yeah, we take it seriously but it doesn't mean that they know what it means. And so we actually see a lot of companies that are maybe aware of our existence, but then they don't really realize it. But then sometimes they do realize it because they mess up. So TP-Link, right? So TP-Link had a, uh, they removed their local API and then a lot of customers called in. It doesn't work anymore with Home Assistant. And they were like, well, never, like, what is Home Assistant? Yeah. So, you know, I actually got on a call with uh, TP-Link um, last month yeah I think last month and we yeah. discussed this and they were like you know it's it's funny they initially reached out to me saying yeah we saw Home Assistant integrates uh, with TP-Link but it does this based on like some code that was found on GitHub <laughs> and this is not an official API yeah, yeah and then I had to tell them like well we're also code that is found on GitHub <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, so, yeah, they were like, okay, okay. And so, I mean, they, they are a big corporation. So they're working on sure. something. So, I mean, for TP-Link, for example, they said that they might have, an, they're going to have a partner-only local API, which fucking dumb, of course. <laughs> Sorry, my language, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can feel the frustration, right? Yeah. it's just, But anyway, they're going to have Home Assistant they want to have Home Assistant as a partner and like implemented API. And I mean, in the end of the day, we're uh, we're open source, so anyone can see that API. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that goes because that's actually a big blocker. A lot of the times is that yeah. all these companies want exclusivity because they are very afraid that they are creating value that they're not capturing themselves. So sure, um, they don't want to have. Uh, you know, if they create a product and then they want to have a product that provides some automation based on like the data that their other devices capture, well, if Home Assistant can do it better, now they're competing with Home Assistant 
because they had this open API. Right. If they never have this open API, they wouldn't have to compete with Home Assistant or every other home automation platform. But of course, their product is also less popular because they don't have an open API, right? It's like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, chicken and egg almost, right? Yeah. But if you look at the big, big corporations, is that they all work like this, right? I yeah. mean, Google and Amazon who are just like throwing around like these minis, uh, their mini assistants for basically free or like very little money. The only way to integrate right now is to have a cloud-based API and implement their cloud-based API, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. So they're working on open standardization and that definitely will help. Um, but yeah, I think uh, talking to more companies, we see, you know, it's actually nice because the ESP chips are so cheap. We mm-hmm. see a lot of uh, companies basing uh, their software on like the ESP8266 and now moving towards ESP32. And those would tend to be because there's, especially the ESP8266, because there's sort of little space on it. They tend to be usually easily to crack or flash yeah. or, mm-hmm. right? There was like Tuya Convert. So Tuya yeah. had all these devices and uh, people yeah. would put open source firmware on it. That's kind of going, like Tuya has like fixed their stuff to not be yeah. able to do that anymore, which is too bad. But in the void, actually, some companies have stepped in, and the one that I uh, generally reference because we work a lot with them is Shelly, mm-hmm. yep. which is a, a Bulgarian company, but they sell ESP8266, and they're also moving to ESP32-based devices, but they actually allow you to flash it. So yeah. the Shelly Relay has just accessible headers, and they say this is how you can put your own firmware on it, and there's actually an ESP home-based firmware available. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, but you don't actually have to flash it to begin with because they have a local push API. So they will actually let Home Assistant know when something changes. So there's even not, it's not super necessary to flash it to begin with. Um, But it's just very cool that they are thinking about this and they are working with this. And I actually, you know, they they provide the people work on the integration with all the devices they need. And the engineers are open for updating the firmware so the integration is better with Home Assistant. And I hope that we can see more of these kind of companies step up being like, we yeah. know people want to, like, if you have to install a relay behind your light switch, you're obviously not a basic user, yeah. right? This is, <laughs> yes. You need to be more advanced anyway. So you can already require some uh, more technical knowledge from your mm-hmm. users. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree there. And and I think I think, you know, you bring up a good point, right, is, at the end of the day, I mean, a company like Shelly or even Tuya, they are mostly a hardware company, right? I mean, I'm not sure if they do monetize some of their cloud stuff or anything else some other way, but, you know, it's at, at its heart, it's a, it's a hardware company, right? So to me, I would say, I mean, given the choice, I would, I would pick Shelly because, in, in, I mean, between these two cases, right? Because, I mean, it is open, it is whatever, and, and it's still hardware, right? So they're still getting the revenue of that hardware in my yeah. eyes. But. Right, and it, like the as a consumer, the choice is also easy because local APIs yeah. tend to not break because they will remain working, right? The yeah. vendor has to do active work to break a local API. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually another thing where, you know, we're like, oh, what is Home Assistant working on? Um, I want to better educate the users about um, sustain, like how uh, the long-term uh, impact of your IoT product, like how you can use it. So... If a product relies on the cloud, then you have to look into how is this cloud funded? Yeah. Because if there's no funding for the cloud, like there's these light bulbs you can pick up for like seven, eight dollars. 
they connect to Wi-Fi, they connect to Google Assistant, Amazon. I'm like, okay, who pays for this light bulb yeah. that is like almost yeah. cost at the price of the hardware, sold at the price of the hardware it would create to make. And it's like, yeah, I mean, how this is permanently connected to the cloud because it has to always receive commands from Google. And like that just doesn't yeah. work, right? And if we can tell people, don't buy these cheap things because it just sucks, then I hope that like, the, you know, it will also... Uh, manufacturers will start to notice that certain things don't sell, mm-hmm. right? Because I think what what I feel, what I notice in just general in society now is that we, you know, it used to be that there used to be very few manufacturers of every product. And so those, they were all very good at it. And they were like, you know, but they were pricey, but high quality. And now yeah. there's just a lot of cheap alternatives of a lot of different products. And they're just shitty and they fall apart. Uh, yeah. But you don't see that per se in the store. Mm. Right, but then you use them a couple of times. And you're like, oh, this doesn't work anymore, etc. The... And yeah, I feel like if as as we teach consumers about IoT devices, like just buy stuff that's local, buy stuff that can keep working, and then it's yeah better in the long run. And like, not all cloud products are bad. Like sometimes it's some things just would require cloud because they do a lot of computation that cannot be done on the edge at least sure. yet. Um, but at least then see who pays for that cloud. Like if you pay a monthly subscription for something, clouds are fine. You know that that's how it's covered, right? They don't have to read out your data. They don't just go away if they cannot sell more products or something, right? Sure. Hopefully, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's when I see like, you know, like a, a Google Home Mini or something. And I'm like, well, you know that they're using this data to learn from you. Like why else would it just be free? Of course, like, of course. That's it, yeah. If you're not paying for it, then ignore the product, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and it's funny because I was reading this the other day. Sometimes even if you are paying for it, you're still the product, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, right. But, but I mean, we, we've seen this kind of stuff again happen over and over and over again. I mean, Logitech is a great example of just how they just really ticked off the entire community by just being like, yeah, you know what? You got this. Too bad. Right? Well, it's going to be bricked you, as of yeah. whenever. There was this... Uh, um, this device that people were, Circuit, I think it was called, or Cricket. It was a device just like last month. They decided it's for uh, making like custom mugs and stuff like this. You could cut mm-hmm. out like fabric and like, um, they decided that if you want to work on more than three projects at the same time, you had to pay a $10 a month subscription, even though you already bought the device and stuff. Oh, wow. And people were pissed off. Yeah. And then now, yeah. now, of course, they reverted it after like a month of like, everybody yeah. yeah like i I also get it's like hey listen our costs are going up so from this point forward if you want to do blah 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 cool right like fine i I could see that right but uh yeah that's that's definitely not uh a tactful way of doing things it's It's like belkin and their wemo they like put out a i think they put out a firmware Mm. saying um you can't use a galaxis anymore and then after you know saying you know their whole advertising pitch was we will never charge a monthly subscription during the pandemic of course you know no no one's buying any of these devices so they can't fund their servers and same thing right uh, we're going to yeah. have to charge a monthly fee now right yeah so. right yeah i think yeah it it sucks but it's, we're going to see it happen more and more often i mean i yeah. always like to give the example of a company that does it well is uh, signify or philips u lights mm-hmm. yep. they actually have a page on their website saying there is remote control and like Google, like that cloud part of our hub, you can uh, 
it's guaranteed that one year from purchase this or two years from purchase this will remain working yep uh, or, and potentially longer so i think their first hub worked for like seven years or something mm. um, but yeah. at least they're clear about it they're honest that's and true yeah. i really wish more manufacturers would do that or even i mean i actually just want a law to be passed that like you know you have to guarantee users or tell users honestly yeah. how long you're planning to offer cloud if it's being sold mm, yeah because there's yeah. like we've seen it yeah, i think there was um uh, those car monitoring tracking devices that shut down mm, yeah, april last yeah, year yeah. right they just said oh we're closing down we're shutting off our servers um don't send the devices back to us just chuck them in the <laughs> bin basically right and so there's all yeah. that e-waste and people have you know put hundreds of dollars into these devices um and now they can't use them anymore right like so it's going to become a bigger issue Definitely. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely an environmental impact too, right? In terms of, to your point, Phil, all the e-waste that gets generated because mm. you know somebody decided, yeah, I don't want to, I don't yeah. want to be in this business anymore. I don't want to do whatever. But, right. But yeah, sometimes it's also you know it's uh, when it comes to like cheap devices, like it's a luxury to be able to afford more expensive devices, right? Like if you are yeah. like there's many there's many light bulbs in your house. If you are putting 10, 20 light bulbs in your house. Then all of a sudden, like three dollars or ten dollars more is a lot of money. Sure, yeah. sure it is, right? And so and, it's, yeah. and that multiplies just more and yeah. more and more, right? Yeah, I think that's so the yeah. You know, it, it's I, I think I, there there ha, there has to be some kind of balance, right? I think between cost of device to um, you know the value of it, right? Like yeah, but yeah, I I have high hopes f- uh, for chip because of this because. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many, like, you know, if, if Google and Amazon or Apple are all involved with chip, so if they start speaking chip, then a lot of more manufacturers will be incentivized to use chip. Uh, and for the readers that are not listening, chip stands for connected home over IP. It's a new home automation standard that's being, uh, developed under the Zigbee umbrella. Uh, so yeah. it's like a spiritual successor to Zigbee, uh, one could say. And they're actually developing reference implementation together with it. So including like an ESP32 firmware. So what would happen is that if you are a Chinese manufacturer and you know you like making cheap products but don't want to bother with software, you could actually just put a, a, a chip chip in it <laughs> and <laughs> take the open source implementation and you have a product you can sell. And that means that we can have very cheap light bulbs with just local chip APIs mm. that don't need any cloud. And we kind of like, you know, this yeah. whole topic that we keep discussing every month in the podcast yeah. right yeah. can become yeah. a thing of the past i mean well, well that we're going to also, talk about right yeah that's true <laughs> that's i right. mean there will be because the thing with the standard is that if you want to differentiate yourself as a manufacturer you yeah. now need to go beyond the standard so all of a sudden Deviate. you can either say i don't implement the standard or the standard can be used to control parts of my product but you still need my app and my cloud to do other things yeah mm-hmm. and then they will break that well, and, and, and you get, that's why if you look at Zigbee, there's all of these discrepancies, right? Between what a, something as simple as a motion sensor can do. Right? Oh, no, for sure. But I think uh, that would be nice if it's all standardized in that, like, it will, if they all use the same software, it should be more yeah. the same. But they'll find yeah. a way to mess it up. Yeah, well, and that's it, right? And and I, I I don't know, like for me, I'm I'm also a little skeptical when when these new protocols come out, right? Because I mean, you think of how long Zigbee Z Wave have been around, but I mean, 
Google, who's also working on chip, is also, you know, they've, they also had Thread, right? Which well, wasn't... No, there was no, so, Wave or something as well. Or, sorry, the Wave. wave. Yeah, sorry, because, not Thread. Yeah, I was about to say, because chip uses Thread. So yes. there's different... Um, there's the there's a, the radio itself. On top of it, Thread is the mesh protocol, how messages are being sent around. Yeah. And then chip is the application layer on top that describes the capabilities and the control commands. So, hey, my light is on. Chip will tell you I'm a light, I'm on. Thread will send that message via nodes to the controllers. But chip will also work over Wi-Fi. Chip will also work over Bluetooth. They are like predefining this from the beginning already. Mm -hmm. Like this is how it's all supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, point is, there's there's all of these different protocols that ends up ends up being. develop right and and you know hopefully you know people are able to actually standardize on it and we say okay like similar to how we standardized on ip in the networking world and said okay you know what we're going to stick to this model um and then you know there there are transitions happening there too but even then it's you know with ipv4 ipv6 things like that okay let's give a nice easy way to transition this at a software layer right so right so the 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 transition that is going to uh, I know. So Silicon Labs, which yeah. is the company that owns uh, Z-Wave, and it's Z-Wave, a comp- yeah. yeah, and it's they. I think they produce like seventy percent of the world's Zigbee chips. Yeah, they uh, are obviously also involved with chip, but they are actually working on a uh, a coprocessor, a chip that you can put in your product that can speak Zigbee and chip at the same time. Mm. And because if you think about it. Philips U and IKEA cannot just start selling chip lights. They need to yeah. be compatible with all their old lights for like yeah. pretty much forever, right? If you have invested, especially in the Philips U ecosystem, that stuff is expensive, right? Yeah. You need to your your the gateway you buy needs to keep working with it. So yeah, yeah, they will not launch until they can be compatible with both protocols at the same time. And so yeah. that I mean that transition will take a long time because yeah, we have invested in our houses already, right? We can't yeah. just like throw all that stuff away. Sure. And, and sometimes it's, you know, several thousands of dollars worth yeah, of, worth exactly. of stuff. Right. And yeah, yeah so. it's tough, but yeah. If you look at the new, uh, all the new stuff that Google is launching. Um, so they just announced a new, uh, Google nest hub with the display. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It actually has a thread chip in it. Interesting. And I think that there, okay. I might be wrong on this, but I think that there, uh, the Wi-Fi mesh also has thread chips in it. So they want to be able to also create a thread mesh in your house to help you get all this data. But of course, they they want to have that chip data instead of like home system. Yeah. But yeah, it will yeah, be yeah. it would still be good if they just become routers and just like repeat all those messages until they hit the controller and then home assistant can be that controller. That would be the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah they'll be like so, yeah, little nodes so they can increase range and yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming out. I mean, there's. I feel this industry is still very, very, very young and we're finally getting to more sensible standards and then yeah. adopting those standards. I mean, to you know, if you think about like having Philips U and Ikea like build those compatible gateways and all this, I mean, we're talking years, not yeah. like months, right? Totally. Um, but it's going to be freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hope, again, hopefully, hopefully there's some, there's some, uh, 
authority around us too, right? Not not authority, but like like a way of organizing these again, like whether it's like an IETF or or some kind of standards body that says, okay, you know, this is how we're going yeah. to well, develop so from here the, on. So this is the Zigbee Alliance is like taking care ex- of this ex- exactly, right? Yeah, but then but then even even any modifications again now Zigbee Alliance deals with Zigbee and Thread and that kind of world, and then there's eighteen other ones that, no, of <laughs> that course, end up of popping course. up, right? So. Yeah, I think, I mean, Zigbee always had the problem that there was no strict certification. Like anyone else that had a Zigbee compatibility could claim Zigbee compatibility. And Z-Wave always had a single vendor. Mm. Now, that's also the reason why everybody's using Zigbee because no big corporation is going to buy a chip that has only one manufacturer because they can raise up the prices and you're lost. Yep, or Uh, tomorrow shut down and guess what? Your product is dead. Yeah, right, exactly. So. Yeah, for wow. a better world, there will be. That's right, that's right. <laughs> All right, Rohan, so on to some, I guess, other stuff, you know, now that we've got our release out of the way. I think the flavor of the month has really been about Nerd Red with you and I. We've been talking back and forwards, you know, with the mm-hmm. past few guests we've had on, they've been talking about Nerd Red. I know my inbox has been flooded with people's, you know, in their disbelief <laughs> of my... Uh, lack of enthusiasm around Node-RED. So, Ryan, you've actually taken the plunge. Tell me about your recent experience with Node-RED. Yeah, so I, I want to backtrack. And, and it was a couple of reasons, right? So one mm. was, again, because to, to Phil's point, I was right there with him going, not that I was against Node-RED, I just didn't care for it. And instead, you know, I was I was using the built-in home automation. Uh, sorry, wow. I was using the built-in home assistant, uh, YAML-based automations and everything. And a colleague of mine basically talked to me about it and he was like, Hey man, check it out, play with it, do whatever. And, uh, this last week I, I just took the week off. So, you know, I had a bit of free time. So I said, all right, you know what, why not? Let's, uh, let's actually try this. Uh, so currently outside of my web hooks, which I have, I think like two, maybe, or maybe three, mm-hmm. um, all of my other automations have, uh, basically moved into node red, including some that I couldn't get working in uh in just with yaml so a couple things i learned um you know it is very easy to uh to make uh make these flows and and to create these automations and you know simple automations obviously are as the name suggests simple um whereas even the complex ones i found it just easier to think out you know as i'm drawing it out being like okay what do i want to do I'm still learning some of the constructs in Node-RED and just trying to say, okay, you know, would I use this or is there a better way to do this? Uh, so in, in, you know, in no way am I saying that my flows are uh, efficient, mm-hmm. but a lot of, they all work. Uh, and, and a couple of the ones actually that I found was uh, I wasn't able to get working in the past just because it was complex, even from the YAML perspective. So as an example, one of them was I want to open my door uh, like my, my back door that leads into my patio. If I leave it open for more than three minutes, kill the echo bee. And then if I close it again, then put it back to the state it was in. Mm, right. Okay. So I very rarely use the auto, uh, auto, uh, feature. I typically do heat or cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because I don't want, you know, the AC running just in case it is in like AC running in the winter or the heater running in the summer, yeah, just because the, the temperature fluctuates a little bit or whatever. Um, so I like to hard set it, but then, you know, I don't want to flip change my automation every time spring or fall or whatever Mm. rolls around. So whatever I had it set to, I wanted to, uh, go back to that, got that working. Um, 
you know, that it, it did take a little bit of kind of uh, drawing out and, and, you know, I haven't really, I know there are ways to do like subflows and things like that. It's like a flow within a flow. Mm. Um, I have, I didn't do any of those yet, but uh, got it working. Works beautifully, actually. How's the, re- uh, I'm guessing you're very impressed with the resets time, right? You just click a, I think it's a reload button or something, and then bam, your automations are alive, right? No re- needing to restart Home Assistant, wait for all the entities to repopulate or anything like that. Exactly. Uh, so there's there's a little deploy button that that's mm. uh, that's kind of on the top right of the screen. You click that, and all of a sudden it's there. And what's really cool is, I mean, we're talking about breakpoints and we're talking about all this stuff. Um, there's actually ways to inject um, a specific thing. So like I can force a trigger. Um, so as an example, uh, I can just click and drag another node, uh, which can basically I can just, pr- it's, it's called an inject node. So I can just mm-hmm. press the button that comes with it and I can simulate my door opening, my door closing, things like that too, mm. uh, which which is uh, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, so it'll allow you to debug your automations and, and all that pretty pretty nicely. Yeah, exactly. And and just, you know, a bu- bunch of other things too, right? Like uh, it actually steps you through the automation as it's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sometimes it does go pretty quickly, um, <laughs> but but it is, it is still pretty, I mean, you could, you could add delays and things like that in there too, right? So just at least while you look at it, uh, you can delay things like that. So, you know what, overall I am definitely impressed i think i will probably stick to node red i I haven't found a reason to go back to it uh Mm -hmm. i know one of the other things is there's also you know people that can create these uh nodes i guess is a term yep uh which is basically you know the function that does whatever right so uh i imported a couple of custom ones for like uh, time ranges or like to say like you know between or trigger and on at this time trigger and off at that time that kind of thing yeah it works works really well and and it seems to be pretty extensible so uh, i know there is one for webhooks that i want to get and i'll probably move those over too and yeah action, actionable notifications work beautifully yeah that's uh, awesome yeah so I remember seeing there was a a type of node option node like a a traffic light I can't remember the terminology, but there's a yeah. traffic light little component that you can add in and yeah. you, know, you can, you know, put in like, you know, if a door's open, you know, it flicks that traffic light from, you know, go to stop and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I can see the powerfulness there. It's just in terms of the way I think of automations, I will just see, I can just see like a lot of entry points and things go like spaghetti going everywhere. Right. So, but do yeah. whatever works for you, I guess. Exactly. Like, like the, the, the spaghetti piece was kind of my, my concern at first, but I guess as you build it out, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, if I, if I look at somebody else's, I don't, I don't mm. know that it would, maybe it will, maybe I will now, but you know, uh, I think in the past when I didn't really use node red, I was kind of looking at it and I'm like, okay, what, what is this? <laughs> right. Like, 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 as as in, I can see it visually, yes, but I I don't know necessarily what's happening or things like that. So, but you know what, it it actually works very, very, very well. And and the nice thing is, I don't have to putz with some of these uh, like like the uh, Jinja two templates and mm. things like that anymore. Uh, I think I think those those were what really put me off of the YAML automations. Um, just by virtue of me being me, I'm just very bad at those in general. So <laughs> how do you find the general speed in terms of home assistant and node red communication? Like if you open a door, is there a, a delay that you've noticed in the automation firing? No, it's pretty much uh 
pretty much on point. One one thing I I did notice is one of my automations, which is uh, turn on. I think it's just my was it my good evening one? It might have been my good evening one. It uh, it didn't uh, fire on the like. So it depends on sunset, right? So the time mm. changes. So today it was seven fifteen on uh, p.m. Yep. So. But it uh, it it triggered at like seven fifteen twenty instead of seven fifteen oh oh. But that's that's not that's not a home assistant and Node Red communication issue. That's just a thing. So and and I'm sure there's ways I can tweak it, and, and it might actually that was actually one of the custom uh, nodes that I that I uh, installed called Skedex. Uh, Skedex, okay. yeah. Um, so it might, it might, it might be, it might be a facet of that, right? Yep. Where I think, I think I can actually even probably specify as like a, just a seconds, but in my case, I can't just because I have it as at, uh, like a trigger is sunset start is mm. the actual terms, right? So, um, yeah. And that can be very variable based on the angle of the yeah. sun, I'm guessing as well, right? But, but what's neat is I can actually see what time that will trigger, right? Oh, so, interesting. Um, so if I, let's say tomorrow morning I go in and look, so I actually do sunset start minus 30 minutes. Yep. Um, so I can see that today that was 7.15 PM. And even if I checked this morning, it would have said 7.15 PM. Mm. Right. So, um, actually right now it's, uh, sorry, every, every time I said 7.15, it was actually wrong. That was the upcoming <laughs> one. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because it, it is technically tomorrow for me mm. right now. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's about 1253 in the morning. So, yeah. So, so I know tomorrow at 715 PM, that's going to get called, right? Um, today, just looking at times that everything else was triggered, 741 was the time. So, it, you know, the point is it, it's really easy to decipher these kind of things. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, which I think is to me, that's a, that's a really nice thing there. Have you had to start using any JavaScript code? Or anything like that, because I know you know, like YAML has your Ginger templates. Node has you know your JavaScript code that you can then customize yeah. down further if you need to. That you know, a special Node can't decipher for you. Have you had to do anything like that yet? Not yet. Um, and and if I did, I'd probably just find something that somebody's done in the past <laughs> and copy and paste it. If not, I give up. No. Uh, yeah. No. I I I haven't. Right. Um, and and you know, if there's if I'm trying to do something that complex. Uh, where I need that mm-hmm. so far from everything I'm doing. And, and I've said this a few times on the show, like my, my automations are fairly simple, I think. Right. Uh, the one I described earlier with the, with the echo B going back to its old status or whatever, that was probably one of the more complicated ones I've gotten. That's not even that complex. Yep. Um, so, I mean, unless that, that changes at some point, I don't, I don't see that being a thing. Nice. So yeah, I'm overall, I'm pretty happy with it. Well, I'll check in with you in a couple of releases and see how you're going. Yeah. All right, Rahan, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, Yeah, see everyone next release. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. If you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's H-A-S-S podcast.io. The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.